U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I'm Dale, and Steve the XO is also here. Hey, Steve! Hey, everyone. Captain let me out of the brig again today. So, we're going back to the Eastern Theater, back to the North Carolina coast, and we got two more battles to go with that, then maybe we'll get to the valley. We'll find out here soon. Eventually. Eventually we'll get out of the Carolinas. Eventually. I mean, there's only two more battles in there. Not going to be too big. Because, again, I mean, most of the Navy stuff is just, you know, shore bombardment. So... We're going to get underway, shall we? Let's cast off. All right, so we got the second battle of Fort Fisher. This was a joint assault by the Army and Navy against Fort Fisher outside of Wilmington, North Carolina. So Wilmington was the last major port open to the Confederacy on the Atlantic Sea Coast. Ships leaving Wilmington via the Cape Fear River and setting sail for the Bahamas. Bermuda or Nova Scotia to trade, you know, their cotton and tobacco for the supplies that they needed to carry on the war. And they were trading primarily with the British. Fort Fisher was constructed mostly of earth and sand, and this made absorbing heavy fire from Union ships more effective than older fortifications constructed of mortar and brick. 22 guns faced the ocean, and 25 faced the land. The sea-facing guns were mounted on 12-foot-high batteries, and 45- to 60-foot batteries aimed at the southern end of the fort. There were also underground passageways and bomb-proof rooms below the mounds of the fort. So this sounds like quite the defensible position, then. Yeah. So, a guy named Alfred Terry had previously commanded troops during the Second Battle of Charleston Harbor, and he understood the importance of coordination with the Navy. So, Terry and Admiral Porter made plans for a joint attack. Terry would send a division of the United States Colored Troops under Charles J. Payne to hold off Hoke's division on the peninsula. And then Terry's other division under Abelbert Ames, who was supported by an independent brigade under Colonel Joseph Carter Abbott, he would go down the peninsula to attack the fort from the land, striking the landward wall on the river side of the peninsula. Porter then organizes a landing force of 2,000 sailors and marines to land and attack the fort's sea face on the seaward end of the same wall. So on January 13th, Terry landed his troops between Hoke and Fort Fisher. Hoke was not willing to risk opening the route to Wilmington and remained pretty much unengaged while the entire Union force landed safely ashore. The next day, Terry moved south towards the fort to figure out what was going on at the fort and decided that a infantry assault would actually succeed. So on the 15th, Porter's gunboats opened fire on the sea face of the fort. 
And by noon, they had succeeded in silencing all of their guns except for four of them. During this bombardment, Hoke sends about a thousand troops from his line to Fort Fisher. Unfortunately, only about 400 were able to land and make it to the defense, while the rest of them were forced to turn back. At the same time, the sailors and marines landed and moved against the point where the fort's land and sea faces meet. This was a feature known as the Northeast Beston. Now, the army's original plan was for the naval force who were armed with revolvers and cutlasses to attack in three waves with the Marines providing covering fire. But, you know, well-laid plans and all that. Never survived contact with the enemy. Right. The assault went forward in a single unorganized mass instead. (laughs) And this ended in a routed assault with heavy casualties in the naval force. But the attack did draw Confederate attention away from the River Gate, where Ames had prepared to launch his attack at 1400. He then sends forward his 1st Brigade under Brevet Brigadier Newton Martin Curtis as Amos waited with two other brigades. So an advance guard used axes to cut through the palisades and abatises pretty much a stake wall and the abatis is pretty much you know stakes pointed at the people that are running towards them so effectively a pike line fortification yeah okay so curtis's brigade took heavy casualties as it overran the outer works and stormed the first traverse at this point ames orders the penny packers brigade forward which he went with into the fort. As these guys marched forward, that's when the Confederate snipers came out and started firing on his men. They cut down a number of his aides that were around him. Mm-hmm. So the Penny Packers fought their way through the Riverside Gate and Ames ordered a portion of those men to fortify position within the interior of the fort. Then the Confederates turned the cannons in a battery called Buchanan at the southern tip of the peninsula and fired on the northern wall as it fell into the Union hands. Ames saw that Curtis's lead units had become pretty much stopped at the 4th Traverse, and so he orders the last brigade forward unfortunately the guy who was in command of that brigade named bell he was hit by sniper's bullet before ever getting to the fort so now the union is crowded into the breach and the interior of the fort so the guy in charge of the fort general whiting he personally leads a counterattack. He charges into the Union soldiers and receives multiple demands to surrender. And, of course, he's like, no, that's not happening. And so he was shot down. So they shot the messenger. Isn't that breaking uh, rules of engagement? He didn't shoot the messenger. They shot the general. Oh. They ordered him to surrender, and he refused. So they shot him. 
I got you now. Yeah. So Porter's gunboats, they were doing very well to help the Union soldiers keep their momentum on attacking this fort. His gunners were deadly accurate, and they began clearing out the defenders as the Union troops came up to the seawall. Now the guy in charge is Colonel Lamb of the fort, and he begins gathering up everybody he can find, including the sick and wounded from the hospital, in a last-ditch counterattack. He was just about to order a charge when he was hit, and so they took him and put him next to the general in the hospital. General Amos, then he decides, you know what, maybe we should just entrench here where we're at. And when Curtis hears this, he grabs a spade and throws it over the Confederate trenches and shouts, quote, dig Johnny's for I'm coming for you. <laughs> uh, okay, you know what? I think that just made top three best Civil War quotes. <laughs> so about an hour later, Curtis, he's now down and he goes back to confer with Amos. Colonel Pennypacker also falls before the battle stops. So, I mean, all these leaders are just getting hit on both sides. Mm -hmm. So the battle, it lasts for a number of hours. Well after dark falls, shells are coming in from the sea and General Ames is starting to struggle with divisions that become more and more disorganized because, you know, all of his regimental leaders and brigade commanders are falling dead or wounded. General Terry sends forward Abbott's brigade to reinforce the attack and then joins Ames in the side, the fortress. While that's happening inside the hospital, Colonel Lamb turns command over to Major James Riley and General Whiting sent one last plea to General Bragg to send reinforcements. Now, General Bragg thinks that the situation at Fort Fisher was was actually just under control. And he was, you know, tired of Whiting keep demanding reinforcements. He instead dispatches General Alfred H. Kolick to relieve Whiting and assume command at Fort Fisher. So at 2130, Coilette lands at the southern base of the fort just as Lamb, Whiting, and the Confederate wounded were being evacuated to Battery Buchanan. And at this point, the Confederate hold on the fort was not tenable anymore. The seaward batteries had all been silenced. Almost all of the northern wall had been captured. And Ames had fortified a bastion within the interior of the fort. Terry... He's decided that he's going to finish the battle tonight. We're not doing this multiple day crap. So Ames orders to maintain the offensive and organizes a flanking maneuver. He sends some of his men outside of the land wall to come up behind the Confederate defenders on one of the last traverses. And within a few minutes, the Confederate defeat was... In hand, Coilette and his staff pretty much see all this happening, sees everybody being evacuated, and 
they nope out. They just about face and run back to their boats. Major Riley, he takes up the white flag and walks into the Union lines to announce the fort's surrender. And just before 2200, General Barry rides to Battery Buchanan to receive the official surrender of the fort from General Whiting. So the loss of Fort Fisher pretty much sealed the fate of the Confederacy's last remaining seaport. And the Confederacy was cut off from global trade. Much of the military supplies that the Army of Northern Virginia depended on came through Wilmington. And there were no more seaports near Virginia that the Confederates could use. It also ended any chance of European recognition being viewed, quote, by many as the final nail in the Confederate coffin. About a month later, a Union army under General John M. Schofield would move up Cape Fear River and capture Wilmington. So January 16th comes around and the Union is celebrating their victory. But that was dampened when the Force magazine explodes. Ooh. Okay, who was smoking in the armory? I thought it was you. I don't smoke. Yeah, not anymore. At least not on duty. (laughs) (laughs) This killed and wounded about 200 Union soldiers and Confederate prisoners that were sleeping on the roof of the magazine chamber or near it. A U.S. Navy ensign named Alfred Stowe Lighton, he died in the explosion while he was in charge of trying to recover bodies from the port parapet. Now, the Union soldiers did think at first that the Confederate prisoners were responsible, but when they did an investigation, it concluded that an unknown Union soldier, possibly a drunken Marine, had entered the magazine with torches and ignited the powder. So that is the Second Battle of Fort Fisher. Lesson learned. If you're partying hardy, do not bring a lit torch anywhere near explosives. Unless you're firing off a cannon, you don't want to do that, period. (laughs) All right, so the last one we have of the North Carolina area is the Battle of Wilmington itself. This was February 11th through 22nd. Of 1865. So after the fall of Fort Fisher, which we just went through, the port city of Wilmington was sealed to any other blockade runners. The Confederate forces evacuated the defensive works near the mouth of Cape Fear, and they were forced to disable and abandon the heavy artillery since they lacked the means to move them up the river. And as you can imagine, the defeat at Fort Fisher affected morale. And this leads to more and more desertion. General Braxton Brigg commanded the defenses of Wilmington, and his forces consisted of General Robert F. Hoke's division from the Army of Northern Virginia and some heavy artillery and home guard. Hoke commanded three of his brigades on the east side of the Cape Fear River, along Sugarloaf near Fort Fisher, north of Fort Fisher, and Hoke's 4th Brigade occupied Fort Anderson on the west side of the river. So the Battle of Wilmington consisted of 
three small engagements along Cape Fear River. So on February 11th, Schofield attacked Hoke's Sugarloaf Line with Alfred Terry's Corps. This engagement started in the morning with a bombardment by Union gunboats on the Atlantic side of the fortifications. This bombardment lasted about a half an hour, and then Terry starts advancing. Now, his left wing wasn't doing too good, because it's hard to march through swamp. Yeah, you can't swim through it. You can't exactly march through it. It's a weird, sloshy mixture you're doing. Yeah. By late afternoon, though, Schofield and Terry had overrun the Confederate skirmish line. And then, while looking at the main works, were like, we can't take that with a frontal assault. So Schofield decides that he's going to capture Wilmington from the western side of the river. So Major General Jacob D. Cox's 3rd Division, the 23rd Corps, was ferried to the west bank of the Cape Fear River to deal with Fort Anderson and the main fort, which, which was the main fortress guarding Wilmington. So Rear Admiral David D. Porter's gunboat sailed up the river and shelled Fort Anderson, which, you know, silenced all 12 of the guns. So Lieutenant Commander William D. Cushing, he constructed a Quaker monitor to trick the rebels into detonating their water mines to make way for Porter's gunboats. So what's a Quaker monitor? Because my first thought was either a seismograph or a 17th century English immigrant who has certain religious views. This was a deception tactic. It was a log painted black to resemble an actual cannon. And it was used to deceive an enemy that the strength of emplacement was stronger than it actually was so uh something akin to holding a stick in the dark and yelling bang yeah okay maybe it works but the trick worked now while this was going on cox who was being supported by general adelbert ames and his division they went up the bank towards the fort he Cox sends the brigades of Colonel Thomas J. Henderson and Colonel Orlando Moore against the garrison, while Colonel John S. Casement and Colonel Oscar Sturl marches through the swamps around the Confederate flank. The Confederacy tried sending cavalry against Casement and Sturl, but that did not last. They routed them pretty quick. Well, and mounted soldiers don't work out the best in swampy terrain. Yeah. Now, the fort's commander, a guy named General Johnson Hagwood, he was not that bad a commander. He was like, the force is telling me that there's a trap afoot. And then once he received confirmation of said trap from General Hulk, he tells him to pull back to a defensive line along Town Creek to the north. Now... Unfortunately, just as they started their retreat, Henderson's brigade started their attack and ended up taking the fort. 
So Cox pursued Hagwood from Fort Anderson and by February 19th caught up to the Town Creek line and Hoke's division retreated to a position three miles south of Wilmington across the river from Hagood's forces. Terry followed Hoke very, very cautiously because he was worried about a ambush or a flanking attack. And, and, and actually Hoke now outnumbered Terry because Ames division was now on the West bank with Cox. So they made Ames ferry back across again to Terry and Porter's fleet. They started clearing the river of torpedoes or mines. Someday torpedoes will be torpedoes as we know them today. One day in the late future. So the next day, Terry starts his advance and he finds Hoke's new lines that afternoon. And once he was convinced that Hoke was dug in, he orders his troops to start building entrenchments while Union gunboats fired on Confederate batteries along the river bank, just west of Hoke's division. Now, Hagood had burned the one and only bridge across Town Creek to slow down Cox, and he entrenched on the north side of the river. Cox was eager to try out a encircling plan that, because of Hagood's retreat from Fort Anderson, the Federals were not able to do. Now, this creek was not fordable. So on February 20th, Cox's troops found a flat bottom boat in the river, and they used it to ferry three brigades across the creek, while the 4th Brigade fought with Haygood as a diversion. Haygood sees this flanking maneuver, and, you know, he's like, well, now this position is very bad. I need to retreat back to Wilmington. So he leaves two regiments and takes the rest of his men and retreats. The Union then wades through the swamp and attacks the Confederate flank, routing those two regiments, taking 375 prisoners and two pieces of artillery. Quite well done. Yeah. So the next day, Cox, he rebuilds the bridges that got destroyed or the bridge that got destroyed. And he takes Schofield's artillery across it, and them, along with Porter's gunboats, are now in range of the city. General Bragg, he looks around, says, um, I think we're done. And he orders the evacuation of the city. On February 21st, Cox's division continues marching towards the city, but they found more destroyed bridges and Confederate cavalry, so that slows them down. And Hoke's division continued to hold off Terry, so Bragg uses the 21st to evacuate Union prisoners located there and evacuating pretty much anything of military value. He also orders cotton and tobacco burned so they would not fall into Union hands, along with the storehouses, foundries, shipyards, and the ships. So he pretty much said anything that the Union could use against us, <laughs> burn it. If it's flammable, burn it down. If it isn't flammable, 
Let's see if we can make it flammable. Yeah. So Bragg retreats with his forces at 0100 on the 22nd, and Cox and his men enter the city after 0800, with Terry coming in at about 09. So the Battle of Wilmington, you know, this was the death nail of the Confederacy. No more supplies, ever. I mean, an- another death nail on top of the death nail. Yeah. Late 64 forward, it was just, the hammer was going on the coffin hard. Yeah. Now there's no more oxygen being introduced into the coffin. (laughs) So, because of this, Bragg came under severe criticism from the press for the Confederate defeat there in Wilmington. And several members of the Confederate Congress, you know, criticized Jefferson Davis and called for his resignation of the presidency. Confederate presidency, so. Well, right. I, I, I thought I might make that clear just in case. <laughs> so the forces from Wilmington retreated towards Goldsboro, North Carolina, where it united with other Confederate forces under General Joseph E. Johnston. So that's where they went. But, of course, the capture of Wilmington also opened up that port for the Union for their supplies. Of course, they had to repair all the damage that the Confederacy did to it while they, when they were leaving. So that is the Battle of Wilmington. We are now done with North Carolina. Good riddance. Oh, you don't like North Carolina? (laughs) Never been. I have. It's nice. So that's going to bring us to the Valley. So... In the spring of 1862, the Confederacy was very, very happy about the first bull run. This happiness did not last long because of the successes of the Union armies in the Western Theater, which we will get to after the Eastern Theater. So George B. McClellan had a massive army of the Potomac. And he was coming to Richmond from the southeast. Major General Irving McDowell, he was coming to Richmond from the north. And Major General Nathan P. Banks' army threatened the rich agricultural area of the Shenandoah Valley. So the Confederacy authorities were looking around and going, um... Hey, you, Major General Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson. Yes, they said his full name like that. (laughs) We need you. You are officially taking command of the Valley District of the Department of Northern Virginia. This included the Stonewall Brigade, a variety of Valley militia units, and the Army of the Northwest. And they were like, hey, Banks... You stay north of the Potomac River. Now, Jackson's Cavalry, who was commanded by Colonel Ashby of the 7th Virginia Cavalry, they raided the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal and the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. So, Banks did not like being told to stay where he was by the enemy. So, he crossed the Potomac in late February and started moving south 
to protect the canal and railroad from Ashby. So rather than just staying on the defensive, he's deciding, you know what, I'm going to take the fight to them, make them react to me for a change. Mm -hmm. So Jackson was operating as the left wing of General Joseph East Johnson's army. And while Johnston moved from Mansus to Culpeper in March, Jackson's position was at Winchester, and he ended up being isolated. And on March 12th, Banks, he continued his advance to the northwest and occupied Winchester. When Jackson saw this, he withdrew to Strasbourg, since he was isolated now. So Banks kept moving further south, attempting to drive Jackson out of the valley. And after he was to do this, he had orders to withdraw to a position near Washington. Now, Jackson, he had orders from Johnston. These were to avoid general combat because, guess what, dude? You are seriously outnumbered. But at the same time, he was to keep Banks occupied enough to prevent a detachment of troops to reinforce McKellen on the peninsula because he was doing an amphibious assault to the Virginia Peninsula. So... Banks, he got bad intel because, you know, intelligence, military intelligence is an oxymoron. Mm -hmm. And he thought that Jackson had left the valley. So he starts to move east back to Washington. And Jackson got scared because he saw what Banks was doing. And this was exactly what he was ordered to prevent. So Ashby sent in some guys to get an idea of the strength of Banks's troops. And he came back, reported that there was only a few infantry regiments and some artillery at Winchester. So Jackson, he decided to attack the Union detachment in a attempt to force the remainder of his corps to return. But remember when we were talking about military intelligence? A complete oxymoron. Yep. The reality is that an entire Union division was still stationed in the town. So this turns into the first battle of Kernston. The Union stopped Jackson's advance and then counterattacked. They turned his left flank and forced him to retreat. Now, this was a tactical defeat for Jackson, and his only defeat during the campaign, this was actually still a strategic victory for the Confederacy. How was that? Because it forced President Lincoln to keep Banks' forces in the valley, and McDowell's 30,000-man troop near Fredericksburg, which means that they subtracted about 50,000 soldiers from the amphibious landing that McKellen was doing at the peninsula. Okay, okay, so concede a little territory for an overall victory. It, it forced the Union lines to become more slim. So the Union is forced to reorganize, and McDowell becomes the Department of the Rappanahook 
and Banks' command becomes the Department of Shenandoah, while Western Virginia becomes the Mountain Department, who, which was commanded by Major General John C. Fremont. And all three of these commands reported directly to Washington. And they were ordered to remove Jackson's force as a threat to Washington. Now, the Confederacy, on the other hand, detached Richard S. Ewell's division from Johnston's army and sends it to the valley. Jackson is now reinforced to 17,000 men and decided to attack the Union forces individually rather than waiting for them to combine and overwhelm him, which is probably a good idea. So he first concentrated on a column from the Mountain Department. And while marching on a route that he really did not like that much, but he used it to mask what he was up to, he ended up getting attacked by Milroy, and this was the Battle of McDowell on May 8th. But he was able to turn back the Union Army after a very severe fight. So Banks sends a division to reinforce McDowell at Fredericksburg, which leaves him only about 8,000 troops, which he took to a stronger position at Strasburg in Virginia. So after Fremont halted his advance into the valley, Jackson next turned to try to take out Banks. And on May 21st, he marches his men east from Newmarket and goes north. They were pretty good at marching. They had a nickname, Jackson's Foot Calvary. <laughs> I feel like Jackson's Joggers rolls off the tongue a little better. Jackson's Joggers. That might be a t-shirt. <laughs> uh, so he sends his horse cavalry, not his foot cavalry, north to make Banks think that he was going to go after Strasburg. But his actual plan was to take out the small outpost at Front Royal and then attack his Banks's line of communication at Harper's Ferry. So on May 23rd at the Battle of Front Royal, Jackson surprised and overran the 1,000-man Union garrison, capturing nearly 700 of the garrison while suffering fewer than 40 casualties. Uh, this victory forced Banks from Strasburg to retreat towards Winchester. Now, Jackson did try to pursue, but, you know, his foot cavalry was exhausted by this point. <laughs> Sir... Please, we've already ran a dozen miles. You can do a dozen more. We really can't, sir. We're not horses. So because of this exhaustion, and because they were looting Union supply trains, this slowed them down quite a lot. So on May 25th, at the First Battle of Winchester, Banks' army was attacked by Confederate columns that were converging on him and was defeated. He had over 1,300 casualties. And more, and a lot of his supplies was lost as well, which 
amounted to around 9,000 small arms, a half million rounds of ammunition, and several tons of supplies. That's a lot of bullets. Yes. Banks, he withdraws north across the Potomac, and Jackson attempts to pursue, but was unsuccessful because Ashby's cavalry did more looting and his foot cavalry was exhausted again. So he let him rest for a few days and then followed Banks as far as Harper's Ferry, where he once again fought with a Union garrison. Now, in Washington, Lincoln and the Secretary of War, a guy named Stanton, they were like, this Jackson feller, he's an immediate priority. This guy is kicking our butts, and he's coming here. Even though what they didn't know is that Jackson's orders were just to keep the Union forces occupied and away from Richmond. So they order Irving McDowell to send 20,000 men from Front Royal and Fremont to move to Harrisonburg. If they could get both of these forces to converge at Strasburg, then Jackson's only escape route up the valley would be cut and he would be trapped. So the immediate thing that happened was that McDowell had to abort a coordinated attack with McLennan on Richmond, which means that Jackson was actually still fulfilling his orders. Yeah. So pretty much uh, Union command was just being incredibly reactionary to Jackson, which wasn't initially his intention, but certainly helped with his objective. Yeah. Jackson was being so aggressive that they scared the pants off of Lincoln and Stanton. So now on May 29th, Jackson is being pursued by two columns of Union forces. So Jackson does a force march south to escape this pincer movement. He marched 40 miles in 36 hours. Wow. Foot cavalry indeed. Yes. He then takes up defensive positions in Cross Keys and Port Republic, where he's able to defeat Fremont and Shields on June 8th and 9th. After this, Union forces were withdrawn from the valley, and Jackson joined Robert E. Lee on the peninsula for the Seven Days Battle. He had accomplished his mission, withholding over 50,000 needed troops from McLennan, and with the success of this valley campaign, Stonewall Jackson became the most celebrated soldier in the Confederacy, you know, until Lee eclipsed him. And his success also lifted the morale of the public. In his campaign of surprise and maneuver, he had his army travel 646 miles in 48 days of marching. My goodness. And he won five significant victories with a force of about 17,000 against combined forces of 60,000. Well done. Yeah. So, there are no battles from the Navy. This is all entirely Army. So, we will not be getting into any of the battles. So, 
with our partnership with HeroCards.us, we are going to honor another of our fallen angels. Today, we are honoring Lieutenant Michael P. Murphy of the United States Navy. He is from Patchogue, New York. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. He was assigned to SEAL Delivery Vehicle Team 1 out of Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. He received the Medal of Honor, Silver Star, and Purple Heart. His date of sacrifice was June 28, 2005. He was killed in action in Asabad, Konar Province, Afghanistan. He was 29 years old, and he served in the War of Afghanistan. That took place 2001 to 2021. So, Navy Lieutenant Michael P. Murphy was an avid defender of others. This trait was likely what led him to join the Navy and become a SEAL. In Afghanistan, he gave his life to save his team members from an overwhelming force. That sacrifice made him the first sailor since Vietnam to earn the Medal of Honor. And it inspired a Memorial Day challenge that's really caught on. So he was born May 7th, 1976 in Smithtown, New York. And when he was still very young, his parents, Dan and Maureen, moved him and his brother, John, to Patchogue on Long Island. He was good at sports and he began sticking up for others at an early age. His family said he got into a fight at school while defending a student with disabilities. Wow. So after graduating from high school in 1994, Murphy went to Penn State University. He played ice hockey while there, and he was a lifeguard during the summers. And in 1998, he graduated with honors with two degrees, one in political science and one in psychology. He got accepted into a few law schools, but decided on a different path. He wanted to become a Navy SEAL. He took mentoring sessions at the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy in Kings Point, New York, before being accepted into OCS, or Officer Candidate School, in September of 2000. He was commissioned into the Navy in December. By July 2002, he had earned his trident, making it through all the courses required to become a SEAL, and he deployed for the first time to Jordan in October of 2002, followed by more deployments to Qatar and Djibouti. In early 2005, Murphy was assigned to the assistant officer in charge of Alpha Platoon SEAL Delivery Vehicle Team 1, and they deployed to Afghanistan in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. On January 27, 2005, Murphy took part in Operation Red Wings as a leader of a special reconnaissance team. Their mission is to locate Ahmed Saha who was a high-level anti-coalition militia leader in the Hindu Kush mountain range east of Azabadad. With him were three fellow SEALs, Petty Officer 2nd Class Danny Dietz, Petty Officer 2nd Class Matthew Axelson, and Petty Officer 2nd Class Marcus Luttrell. The following day, the four men were in rugged, enemy-controlled area high in the mountains when they came across three goat herders. They questioned them and then let them go. It's believed that those men sympathized with the enemy and reported the Americans to the Taliban. As a result, up to 40 enemy fighters swarmed the steep face of the mountain where Murphy and his team were located, and a massive firefight ensued. Wow. All four SEALs were injured quickly, 
but they refuse to give up the fight. Ignoring his own wounds, Murphy encourages men to stay strong and began calling for help to get them out of there. His calls were not going through, though, more than likely because of the remote train. He, they couldn't get a signal. So Murphy fought his way towards open territory to find a better position to transmit. Despite taking on direct enemy fire, Murphy managed to get in touch with backup forces to give them their location and ask for immediate, re immediate support. At one point during the call, he was shot in the back and dropped the transmitter, but he picked it back up and finished the call and fired back at the enemy. Despite severe wounds, he then made his way back to cover with, with his men. In response to his rescue call, a MH-47 Chinook helicopter with eight more SEALs and eight Army Special Operators were sent in to extract the four men. However, as it got closer to the fight, it was hit with a rocket-propelled grenade and crashed, killing all 16 men aboard. Back on the ground, Murphy and the others continued to fight, and over the span of two hours, the men battled the incoming enemy across hills and over cliffs. Eventually, though, Murphy, Dietz, and Axelson were killed. A rocket-propelled grenade blasted Lertrell over a ridge and knocked him out. When he woke up, the seriously injured SEAL was able to evade the enemy and find some sympathetic locals who hid him in a nearby village for days. On July 2nd, 2005, U.S. forces were able to rescue him, all thanks to that call Murphy made. The remains of Murphy, Diaz, and Axelson were also recovered. Murphy is buried in Calverton National Cemetery in Calverton, New York, less than 20 minutes from his childhood home. In 2005, the firefight was the single largest loss of life for naval special warfare since World War II. The only solace that might have been gained from it was that during the battle, the four men on the ground took out about 35 Taliban fighters. For Murphy's selfless leadership and courage, he was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. His parents received it from President George W. Bush during a White House ceremony on October 22, 2007. Murphy was the first person to fight in Afghanistan to be awarded the nation's highest honor for valor. Luttrell later said of his compatriot, quote, Mikey was the best officer I ever knew. An iron-souled warrior of colossal and almost unbelievable courage in the face of the enemy. Murphy has been memorialized in many ways since the story of the ordeal was first told. Over the years, a CrossFit-style workout became a popular challenge among fitness buffs to do on Memorial Day to honor fallen service members. It's now known as the Murph in honor of Murphy and it supports the Lieutenant Michael P. Murphy Memorial Scholarship Foundation. The guided missile destroyer USS Michael Murphy was commissioned in 2012 in his honor. Lieutenant Murphy's Medal of Honor citation read, For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity, at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty as leader of, of a special reconnaissance element with Naval Special Warfare Task Unit Afghanistan on 27 and 28 June 2005. While leading a mission to locate a high-level anti-coalition militia leader, Lieutenant Murphy demonstrated extraordinary heroism in the face of grave danger in the vicinity of Azadabad, Konar Province, Afghanistan. On 28 June 2005, operating in an extremely rugged enemy-controlled area, Lieutenant Murphy's team was discovered by anti-coalition militia sympathizers who revealed their position to Taliban fighters. As a result, between 30 and 40 enemy fighters besieged his four-member unit, demonstrating exceptional resolve. 
Lieutenant Murphy valiantly led his men in engaging the large enemy force. The ensuing fierce firefight resulted in numerous enemy casualties, as well as the wounding of all four members of the team. Ignoring his own wounds and demonstrating exceptional composure, Lieutenant Murphy continued to lead and encourage his men. When the primary communicator fell mortally wounded, Lieutenant Murphy repeatedly attempted to call for assistance. For his beleaguered teammates, realizing the possibility of communicating in extreme terrain and in the face of almost certain death, he fought his way into open terrain to gain a better position to transmit a call. This deliberate, heroic act deprived himself of cover, exposing him to direct enemy fire. Finally achieving contact with his headquarters, Lieutenant Murphy maintained his exposed position while he provided his location and requested immediate support for his team. In his final act of bravery, he, he continued to engage the enemy until he was mortally wounded, gallantly giving his life for his country and for the cause of freedom. By selfless leadership, courageous actions, and extraordinary devotion to duty, Lieutenant Murphy reflected great credit upon himself and upholded the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. Lieutenant Michael P. Murphy, thank you. All right, XO, you want to take us out? Absolutely. Once again, we thank you for listening to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to reach out to us with a comment or a review, we'd love to hear it. If you'd like, we can even read it on the air. If you'd like to participate more directly with the conversation, we do have a Discord server now. You can find the links to that in the show notes. If you'd like to reach out to us via email, you can get to us at gmail. <laughs> and our email address is... <laughs> we have a Gmail. And that Gmail is usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We also have a Twitter handle. You can reach out to us with that using at usnhistorypod. With that, we wish you luck if you decide to participate in the mirth, fair winds, and following seas. Goodbye. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. Departing.